millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White, Managing Editor of Forma Journal, and as always, an avid enthusiast of interesting people doing wonderful things. So in this episode, I'll be talking with Josh Bales, a singer, songwriter, therapist, and priest. Josh, thank you so kindly for joining us today on the Forma Podcast. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure, Heidi, and I'm really honored to be on your show. Oh, well, thank you. Josh, a little bit about Josh for our listeners. Josh is equal parts singer-songwriter, Anglican priest, and mental health therapist in private practice. He holds an MDiv and MA in counseling from Reformed Theological Seminary, as well as a certificate in Anglican studies from Neshota House Theological Seminary. He is the Senior Fellow for Music and Art at the Colson Center. Josh's music has gained a following of fans from all walks of life after recording four diverse albums and touring for more than 15 years. His latest album is a second volume of hymns called Come Away from Rush and Hurry, released in 2018. Originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Josh now lives in Orlando, Florida, where he serves as canon priest at the Cathedral Church of St. Luke. So Josh, thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Is it okay if I just dive into the conversation? Yes, please. Let's do it. All right. Well, first, will you tell us just a little bit about your work? You're an Anglican priest, a musician, and a therapist. That's a lot of things. So tell our listeners about that. How did all that come about? Yes. Well, even as you say those words, I'm feeling stressed right now. So that's probably... um, you know, uh, honestly, I, I had no, I had no plan to do to do all three things. I just really loved all three things, hmm. and I I grew up in the church in the Bible Belt in Tennessee, and from an early age. I mean, this is perhaps a cliche, but it, it was true for me. I I always felt called to be in what they what they what they call full time ministry, and growing up and. So, so I, I sort of pursued that, even even going to seminary. But while that was happening, the music part of my life just kind of developed, and I kept writing and kept recording. And um, those, so then, the, I don't know. Then the, the therapy thing has been a part of my story because my mom was a therapist, so I grew up with you know random psychology books literally on the like coffee table in our living room, <laughs> not not your not your normal like magazines sitting on the coffee table, but like weird psychology books. Good for so your I'm mom. Sure, she sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's either really, really weird or, or very good. I don't know. But but I, I'm sure that had a, a big role to play in like finally pursuing the actual therapy part of my my work. So so then then I then the the MDiv part of my seminary kind of took me further into ministry and then the MA in counseling took me further into to counseling work. So 
And then I married a counselor. So okay. there's that too. There's always, there's that. But there's the, now, the, the streams come together. The streams. Yeah. Well, well, th- th- that was probably the part B of my story is how the three work together. And I, I feel like I've tried over the years to do, to whittle it down to one of the three. And I've, I think I've, I've done, I think I've focused on one of the three parts hmm. at a single time in my life and it's never worked out. Like I've tried to put all my eggs in one basket and I, for practical reasons or for just um, soul reasons, I didn't feel like it was what I should be doing. So here I am now, I'm at a, a wonderful church full time, but they embrace my work as a therapist and as a musician. And so like I get a certain number of weeks to travel a year. Hmm. And then I see all of my my private practice counseling folks in my office as a priest. So it, it just like, I feel so blessed. I, can, I cannot even describe the the fun of getting to do all three things. Um, and of course, they're not all happening at once. Like, right. you know, we were talking a little earlier, this week is a heavy church week because we we're handling a pastoral crisis with the coronavirus. But um, but yeah, sometimes there'll be these golden weeks where I see clients, I get to celebrate the Eucharist at noonday mass or something. And then I leave on Thursday for a, a music trip and it's like perfect. <laughs> that's that's I, like just that's my amazing. soul is alive. Yeah. So Josh, I, I heard you speak late last year at an event in Colorado Springs at St. George's Anglican Church, and you spoke about music and mental health, and you addressed your work as a priest as well. The talk was excellent, just inspiring and wise and warm-hearted, uh, and I really noticed your heart for the people of God just shown that night. And to address what you just said, I'm really interested, and I'd love to talk more about what you just said. It's kind of personal for me because like you, I do a lot of things. I'm a wife Mm -hmm. and a mom. I'm the managing editor of Forma Journal. I host this podcast. I also do another weekly podcast on the Close Reads Podcast Network when we read and discuss books. I teach Mm -hmm. high school literature and train teachers and homeschoolers to teach literature and the classics and speak and write and travel and all that kind of stuff too. And I also do counseling, and that's my personal training. I, too, have a master's degree Mm. in counseling. And all of that sometimes may seem diverse, and you may come come across this, too, or even disconnected to some people. But to me, Mm -hmm. it shares a common root. It's all very organic and connected uh, because I believe in the power of stories. I believe in the power of narratives to heal and to form the Imago Dei or the image of God in us. Mm-hmm. I'm zealous about that. So I dwell in that space in what turns out to be a multiplicity of ways. Right? Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. manifests in various streams of vocation, but it comes down to that root. So yes. when I heard you speak, I, I caught some of that in you as well, that same connectivity. Am I right? And can you put that into words? Yes, um, you, you are so right. I don't know if I could put it into better words than you just used. That was very eloquent. And I, my, it captured exactly where my heart is. Um, mm. and I, I, but I, I feel like it's taken me maybe a good five or 10 years. This just speaking about my personal journey, uh, taking me five or 10 years to figure out how to communicate the, the diversity with the common heart. Hmm. Uh, or like with the the diversity of interests that I have, but the common heart for 
for God, for his church, um, for like, I don't know, my, my own, my own healing journey. So you put all that in a, in a big soup and you stir it around. It's like, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, like you said, organic, like meal, you know what I mean? Different ingredients, but man, it just, to me, it makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, so, so yeah, I, but I don't think I could say, I don't think I could say it better than you did. Um, a diversity of interests. It's hard to explain to folks sometimes, but the heart or the root is the same. And, Mm. um, and, and the connection that you made with story and I, I would say like, like with humans. So, mm-hmm. I mean, Imago Day kind of stuff, there's like, it seems like in your interest and, and in mine, like we're kind of chasing after the same thing, you know, right. um, salvation or, or healing, ultimate healing in all of its iterations, spiritual, yes. rela- relational, emotional, um, even intellectual, like with the books and the reading and the stuff like that. So, right. yeah. So let's, Let's talk about your work as a singer songwriter, which is how I originally came across your name. Uh, we listened to your albums at home, and when mm. I was very first homeschooling my kids many years ago, uh, we I remember we we memorized the hymn "My Father's World" and your version of it. Mm. Um, so thank you for that. I really just mm. can't recommend your albums enough to our listeners. They're wonderful. So please check Josh out, Josh Bales out. But there's something special about music, right? That's formative mm-hmm. and healing to people. Like my my thing's story. Uh, but and I'm not a musician, but I recognize and the ancients taught that, right? The music of the spheres, that music mm-hmm. has this harmony to it that that harmonizes the soul. Uh, mm-hmm. have you found that to be true? And can you kind of speculate on on what that is? Yeah, speculate. Speculate is a good word because I do. I do think it's a mystery. I mean, there is something about about song and music um, to connect all of this. There's something about like putting our faith into song that is very um, mysterious in its power to move us, like to change, even to to bring about change. And so, like whether you're riding in the car and you're not you're feeling numb you're feeling nothing um you're just doing your task for the day and then you flip on a song on the radio or whatever and you start to to weep i mean that's change that's movement in a person so i I think that's why music is has the power over humanity that it does whatever that thing is but Mm -hmm. i would say uh, i don't do i don't do like actual music therapy or anything and in that way um, the, those those pieces of my life are not not as connected, um, but certainly I'll reference songs and 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 stuff in in counseling, um, and people talk about, you know, people will say, um, oh, I put on an album to try to begin this grieving process because this this certain album makes me brings me to tears. It helps get the the, the feelings out. Um, yeah, so th- so there's there's that part of it, but for me, I think music and therapy connect via the creative storytelling part of it. Hmm. Like creativity being one part of the one essential part of both of those things. And then um, the story being the other part. So even in counseling, like, and, and, and you've, I'm sure you've experienced this when you're sitting across from an individual or a couple for that matter, and they start to tell their story, there's almost a song quality to it. Hmm. Like there are refrains, there are choruses, um, 
Like I've never felt loved. I've never felt loved. You know, we'll come to find out that's a part of not just this person's marriage, but their, their, their family of origin years and so, that kind of thing. So huh. the verses, you know, the verses are like little bits of stories that reflect kind of the main theme. So there's a creative like element to even how people tell their story in therapy, you know? So it's not super different for me sitting down with my guitar and trying to get out the story that's inside of me, whatever that is. I don't know. That's, that's kind of how I connect it. It's sort of, maybe it's too loose, but that's, oh that's what happens. Are yeah. you kidding? I love that. You're exactly right. I've never thought of that before, what you just said, that there are these refrains, these choruses, these stories, in a sense, that we tell ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right. When you sit across from a person who is trying to find a thread of redemption in their own story and don't know how to find it, <laughs> a lot of times mm. it's because there's this refrain that the chorus, the refrain they're telling themselves, the story they're telling themselves is in many cases a lie, not intentionally, but because of the darkness that they've experienced, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of hearing the refrain, which is, I have always loved you from God. It's, I've never been loved, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so part of therapy, part of counseling, part of healing is learning to tell yourself a different story. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, I, th- I feel like we could take this metaphor in, in a lot of Do directions. Do it. Go but for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, to continue, I think I think my role then as a therapist is to kind of, like, I, I'm telling them uh, parts of the song that I hear that they may not hear, you know, mm. um, which is exactly what you do in a recording. You know, you're listening, especially when you're in the recording process, you're like, some people will pick up on what the bass is doing and other people will pick up on what the guitar is doing or the piano is doing or the violin's doing or whatever but um to be able to pull that thread out that's different sort of you're you're that's just the the technical term is reframing right like mm-hmm. you're just kind of reframing for them what has happened in their life so but but all of this like the big the big heading for what we're talking about now is it's creative storytelling right. i mean which is exactly what music is and exactly what counseling is you right. know that's true and what what writing is, right? And, mm-hmm. and I know you're a writer as well. And as I'm thinking about this in the context of teaching, and um, which is what I do. And mm-hmm. you know, for for example, on our on the Close Reads podcast, the other podcast I do, we just read Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a dark story, and it is. It's the record of one man's distorted inner monologue the story Mm -hmm. that he's told himself and it's, and so that he can't see those redemptive flashes in an ordinary life. He doesn't have somebody. And that's the whole point of the book. He doesn't have anybody sitting across from him and saying, I hear this refrain in what you're saying. What if, what if there's a different story? What if there's a different Mm -hmm. thread? What if God was there? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's one of the ways that, that literature can speak into that gap in between the story we tell ourselves and the true story that's coming from the creator and music, I think can inhabit that gap as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because it, it's, it has this harmony to it. And I, I mean, I'm sure, do you have, I, I'm putting you on the spot here because this wasn't in, it was pre 
this wasn't said before the recording, but do mm-hmm. you have any, do any stories come to mind? Any, any stories from your own personal practice or your own life about how music and storytelling have worked together to bring healing to somebody's life? Mm, wow. That's a, that's a question worth pondering. Um, I mean, there are so many, I, I don't, but, but I can't, I can't think of some of the stronger ones, you know, other than um, referencing uh, like, there's a song by Mary Chapin Carpenter about, about grief. This is one of her more recent. Um, it's funny, like as she's, she's getting on in years, but she's mm-hmm. continuing to record her songs are like getting more and more um, deep. <laughs> they're getting deeper and darker, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So she, she writes a song about grief and I think it starts out like grief rides quietly in the passenger seat of my car. Um, and then, and then the story continues with like her friendship with grief basically and her like coming to grips with grief and grief is everywhere in her house. And it's like personified, you know? Um, so I, I, I recommend that song a lot, um, to someone who's sort of starting the grieving journey for whom grieving feels so weird and unnatural and why would I give into this feeling? I, I need to be fighting it. And I'm like, nope, you need to put it in the passenger seat of your car mm-hmm. and you need to drive around town with it. And you need to get to know it and it will become your friend and then it will go away, you know? But um, right. yeah, so I don't know That's of good. all people to think of Mary Chip and I'm not like a huge Mary Chapin Carpenter fan, but in her recent singer songwriter albums, they've just been lovely. They're acoustic they're, hmm. um and they're deep. So I really like that idea of welcoming the, even to personify emotions and welcome them as guests and friends instead of turning them away. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I, I have to, I have to make a confession. Um, this is so, this may be so off topic, but in terms of art and counseling, art and therapy, believe it or not, and this could be so weird. I don't even know. You'll probably want to erase this from the interview, but I'm pretty excited um, about whatever you're about to say right now. <laughs> so, okay. I, I, I have found that more than music in therapy, like in this setting, I'm in my office right now. I, I tend to recommend people to watch um, horror films. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> Go it's on. So okay, because in every horror film you have you have some you know really scary thing that's trying to communicate some message and it haunts you until huh. you like face it. And that is, I, I swear, that must have been five of the six people I met with on Monday. Must have that's that's their story in one whether it's death or grief or divorce or betrayal, or it doesn't matter what it is. It's like people avoiding it. I'm trying to help them face it here. Let me, you could pick of these five four films. It's all the same theme. Um, and I, I, I get that there's a shock factor and a sure. darkness. And uh-huh. so, but, but honestly, I think that's what helps kind of awaken the, it opens you up. You're like, it, it, right. Um, it, yeah. Okay. To I be love even, that. I love that. Go on. Keep going. I was going to say one more thing. In terms of the shock factor of the genre of horror films, I grew up never watching horror films. I I was scared to death of them. And that's a part of my journey in getting in touch with the the depths of negative, hard emotions in my own life has been kind of like coming to grips with, hey, there really is darkness in the world. It is scary. And so for me, sort of 
um, the genre of, of horror. I'm not talking about weird, gory B horror movies. I'm talking about films like there's a film called The Baba Duke, for example. It is scary. It's frightening, but it's deeply moving. And if you're not weeping by the end of it, l- literally, um, I mean, it, it's very clearly a therapeutic film. So, um, but for me, that's been a way for, for Josh to get in touch with his, some of the darkness in my soul, you know, and sort of um, exercise and get it out. Um, yeah. So, so the shot factor is there. I think I remember um, Tony Robbins, the kind of famous feel good. Um, mm-hmm. yep, um, guru from yeah, the yeah. 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 90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's still, who's still, by the way, still going strong. Um, but he, uh, he, he, there's a documentary and someone asked him in this documentary, why do you use so much uh, language? Like, like Robbins drops the F-bomb, like it's just nothing, like oh, constantly. Mm-hmm. And he, he said this, he said, I only do that uh, sort of in a therapeutic context to, to kind of wake, wake people up. It, huh. The shock value helps people remember. And I, so anyway, so my clients go watch the Baba Duke on a Friday night after we've met. And they're shocked and afraid and then weeping hmm. and they never forget it, you know? Um, so I don't know if that's, that's probably like a well-documented thing that I've just never found the resource for. But um, to me, that's the one form of art that is like always a part of my, my therapy. So, so I, I have a couple of follow-up questions on that, but I want to get okay. <laughs> a couple of more recommendations. So you said the mm-hmm. Babadook and then what else? What other ones would you recommend? Oh man. Oh gosh. Now I'm a little bit frightened to go on record because um, I, I, I don't know. These, these are frightening films. Sure. And we, I'd, yeah. have to, I'd have to think about it. I've actually been working on an article about this. So I'm, okay. I don't know if I'm ready to like put Send it out it there. Send it over yet, to but, Forma when you're yeah. done with that. Um, so this goes, I'm, I'm very interested in what you're saying right now because I, I give – several talks a year on the topic of monster stories and how every, every story is a monster story mm-hmm. that, that there is this, if you look in any, any enduring story, I'm not talking about like Raggedy Ann and SpongeBob. I'm talking about any kind of enduring children's story or adult story. It is always follows the same pattern from Pride and Prejudice to Harry Potter. Like that there is this, that, that the beginning of the story, there's some kind of stable society. It's either flawed or not flawed, but it's stable. And then a monster comes into the story. And the monster can be metaphorical. The monster can be literal. But some kind of darkness invades the story. And that mm-hmm. corresponds to the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And then a hero arises, uh, becomes strong. Some, most of the time, the hero starts out as as weak and unable to confront the monster at the beginning mm-hmm. of the story, right? And but the the hero then must be trained and made worthy of it through their own via dolorosa, their own way of suffering, their own mm, yes, training. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes, their own training in combat, whatever that combat mm-hmm. is required, and then the hero has to die to sacrifice themselves as they mm. confront the monster, just as Christ did, and then the hero comes back to life in some way, whether metaphor. And I mean, you can find this in literally every story. Like I said, you can find it in Pride and Prejudice. The monster is within, right? They are these, they're proud and prejudiced. (laughs) And Mm. because of that, they're kept from 
this wedding that is intended for them. And then there's also these external forces. And then Elizabeth Bennett must be made worthy to uh, for her feast, for her wedding, right? And then, so these, and of course you can see that in even more sharp detail in fantasy stories, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, and so on and so on. And what you're talking about in a literal monster story is kind of the forcing of this narrative upon a soul that that feels like it's too weak to handle it, but it isn't. Yes. Yes, that's uh, absolutely. Yep, yep. Okay, great. Now I don't feel so crazy. And no. again, yep. you 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 said it way more eloquently than I did. That's exactly no, not right. Not at all. So don't don't hesitate to recommend these with the caveat that, you know, these are not for children and and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Use your judgment and in, in your discernment. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. But yeah. there is a sense in which the monsters are too strong unless we submit to the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. And 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 like, like I'm. I wish I could remember the name of the uh, of this this filmmaker. I honestly think it's Wes Craven. I'm not like a big Wes Craven fan or anything, but I think he went to Wheaton College. He did go to Wheaton College. That's yeah. True. Okay. Yeah. And there was some there was some uh, some article a number of years ago about about like a theology of horror films and huh. it was really good. It, I can't remember which publication put it out, but um, yeah. One, like if, if, so if listeners are interested, like, Ooh, I want to try that, but I don't want to jump in the deep end. And you know, my husband comes in the room and I'm watching some weird horror film. He's going to be like, what is going on? So if I wanted to just put my toe in the water, I would say, um, why don't you try um, a monster calls? It's okay. called a monster causes. It's really like it's it's um it's a, a really accessible uh, film. Um, Liam Neeson is like part of the is one of the voices. Uh, it's just way more accessible, but also does everything you and I just talked about. So mm-hmm. okay, a monster calls. All right, and as you think of things, don't feel. I mean, don't don't hesitate to just like shout them out like Tourette style. Just oh, okay. I thought of another okay. one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Well, there you go. So I don't know how we just got to where we got, but um, yeah, that's, I guess it makes sense if you've got two people who like to do lots of random stuff all that's from the right. same place that you would end up talking about <laughs> horror films. But. Monster stories and horror films. And yeah. So, but Josh, you're also, along with being a horror film connoisseur, uh, you are also an Anglican priest. But I see in your mm-hmm. bio that you came, you have some training. Did you come from a reformed background? Right? You know, I pa- I passed yes, um, I passed through reformed land on the way um, to to a more um, yeah to a more Anglican perspective. So, okay, so I'm curious part- about that. I want to ask you about that. Forma's ecumenical. We share a common identity as the people of God, but you know, we're also always interested in people's spiritual journeys. So, tell us about your work as a priest and how that came about. Tell us a little about that part of your journey. Sure. I mean, the way I, I grew up in a Baptist church, I, um, I grew up in a Baptist church. I, we attended like kind of a Bible, a Bible church mentality, like a kind of like John MacArthur type church for a number of years. And then after that, I, um, when I first started working in ministry, I, I was really drawn to, um, reform theology and uh, that that part of the Christian family, but I just my search took me. It kept kept moving me along, and it was the 
early church and the church fathers. And um, it was actually uh, an ancient faith radio podcast, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, absolutely. Um, that where I heard Brad, a guy named Bradley Nassif uh-huh. uh, in Illinois. I think he, he made a comment um, that, you know, the Anglicans, he said, are the Orthodox of of the West because mm-hmm. they have the same same issues with Rome and the same issues with Protestantism that sort of keep them in their own little space. And I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, had, I had been sneaking away to Anglican Episcopal churches for years at that point, <laughs> but um, already, I mean, I was working in a P, uh, Presbyterian Church of America, but we were doing mostly Anglican liturgies on Sunday morning. So, mm-hmm. um, but at that point, I was cutting the grass one day. I heard him say that, and I thought, okay, well, I'm done. Like I think Calvinism and it's and it's the way I had learned it is is it's 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 done for me because I just I wanted to be a part of the theology of the undivided church. Right. Which, um, yeah. So like the the learning the Vincentian canon as they call it was huge for me. Like that we believe what has been believed by all everywhere at all times, you know, that, that kind of an idea, mm-hmm. which that, that gets you through like the first five centuries or something. Right. Um, and then after that, things start to, but that for, for the, the, the version of Anglicanism that I fell in love with, because I think there are a few versions of it was the version that said, we are Western, but we want to be um, with the, with the fathers kind of in our theology and our practice and we acknowledge that Rome had a deep impact on, um, on England. So that's a part of our heritage too. But so then in the end, you get this wonderful mix. You get lots of Eastern theology, you get lots of Roman um, Western practices, and you get lots of like Protestant heart. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if I can be bold, I would say the, the mm-hmm. one thing I would raise the Anglican flag on is that we're in the midst of all the various parts of the Christian family tree, we're like the, the one group who doesn't actually keep people away from, from Eucharist. And maybe we do that to a fault, but we would never withhold Eucharist from a Roman Christian or an Orthodox Christian or a Protestant Christian. Baptizing the Trinity, then you can, this is the Lord's table. Whereas I think if I understand correctly, um, Roman Catholics, you know, are, are, um, would not allow us to take, and I, and I know I couldn't take in an Orthodox church mm-hmm. communion. So, so I just, I, I find that I really enjoy that. I really, that right. reflects my heart for the church. I think. Um, open table. Yeah. And, and, and not, not, not for people who have not been baptized, of sure. course, but yeah, for Christians of all, um, of all parts of the, from, from all traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I love that. So I can tell from your music and you just you just referenced this and I am honing in on it of course and your blog that you are a reader right mm. you're a big reader. I try to be yes. I, I try to be yeah so your songs and your blog posts they're peppered with allusions to great thinkers writers poets fathers of the church as well as contemporary thinkers and creators you know Ken Myers Andrew Peterson Friedrich Beekner uh, mm. so how does your life as a reader contribute to your vocation Oh man, I, 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 it's the lifeblood, right? Mm. I mean, I'm with my, I feel like I'm with my friends. Mm. It's a community of thinkers. Um, it's own, it's own community of like men and women, 
I'm looking at my books right now. They're on my shelf. It's like, who do I want to talk to today about huh. um, therapy? You know, well, I've got some William Glasser or some Sneeds or some Irvin Yalom or, I mean, then you go down the list, you know, who do I want to talk to about, about music or about culture or something? I've got my, I've got all my Colson Center books right in front of me as well. Jeremy Begbie on beauty and music. You know, I mean, mm, these are, right. it's, isn't it like a conversation? It's same, yes. so, um, and, and I, I was saying, um, I think right when I got cut off, I was saying that I've, I've, to be honest with you, I'm really, I'm not a good reader. I've never felt like a strong reader. And the, the first time that reading really took off for me, I, I was made to read growing up, even in, I was at homeschooled for a time. And so we had to read like a certain number of pages a week, just every week. It could be anything um, um, at our kind of grade level, but we were made to read and I did not like it <laughs> at <laughs> all. Um, it wasn't really until college and that I was finally reading stuff that actually captured my imagination, which, which was the theology part. So, so I feel like I've been a little bit stunted in my growth as a reader after, after that because I've kind of stuck to what I know and what I know I can get through and, and, and enjoy. And, um, but, but I've always been drawn to fiction. I've always wanted to read fiction. I've always wanted to read novels and stories. And I've, I've very much struggled with that. So I don't know if that's my ADD or what. Um, but so recently I've like started trying to learn how to read fiction better. And I'm literally like working my way through books that probably most people read when they were younger. Um, mm. this, this past summer. So right now I'm, I'm attempting the biggie, one of the biggies, Anna Karenina. Awesome. And I'm finding it's not as, as, as hard as I was was afraid it was going to be like I'm actually into it you know what I mean yeah, I'm, I'm, I it's do. not a chore at all now I'm like I'm over the hump I'm way into it I can't reach I can't wait to open it when I put the girls down and um but but as early as this summer I literally read the yearling for the first time in my life and, and did you would, did you cry everybody oh cries gosh. when they read that book that absolutely is a book that is like the masculine soul that book is. Oh my gosh. I mean, I did not, I didn't, I, I figured uh, kind of the ending of the story, but not as it, as it hit me was, yeah, like more what you're saying. It wasn't just, you know, a, a pet story. It was about the masculine soul. So um, also, you know, it's, it's the setting is here in Florida. And so that was really interesting to me too. Like, oh, I live, I live really close to like where this kind of happened, you know, or where the setting was. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, my, I'm, I'm learning. I'm like, a, I feel like I'm a new fiction reader. Um, so that, that's kind of my story right now with reading. Um, if I can, if I can confess that, I feel like everyone else I know is a better reader than me. So I'm working at it. So I feel like everybody I know is a better reader than me too. And I'm an avid okay, reader. Okay. And, um, but I think what you're saying is probably really, really encouraging to lots of parents who are mm -hmm. listening in and saying, my kids, I want them to be readers because it's something I love yeah. and it just hasn't caught on. They haven't taken off on that yet. So it's, it's, it's this, the planting of seeds. That's what yeah. parenting is. That's what therapy is that's I mean even as a musician people listen to your songs sometimes I'm sure and say oh that was nice and then later they'll remember something that hits them at a time when they need it um, mm -hmm. so I think that's 
many of our journeys with reading as well. But you, I'm, I'm interested in this. You, in your talk in Colorado Springs, you referenced some very early work from the church fathers and your eyes lit up when you read the quote. I noticed it right away. Uh, and the church fathers, as those of us who I'm, I'm reading the church fathers for the first time as an adult as well. Uh, mm. And they are, I'm learning absolutely not dry academics, but mm -hmm vibrant, spiritually healthy men who saw things we often don't see about an integrated spiritual life. Integrated, uh, so, that's it, yeah. Yes, yeah, so tell me about your reading of the Church Fathers. What have you found and how does that impact your work? Well, the I think my introduction to the Church Fathers was um, sad to say, and this is, this is I'll, I'll just make the point and not comment on it, but in my studies at Reformed Theological Seminary, um, which, I have a lot of friends there, we did not read a lot of the Church Fathers. Um, right. And at I this didn't point, until my, I was an adult either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you would, I'm, what, from what I know now, that just so surprises me. And I, and I, and I dare say, I think it's like, um, it's a weakness of Reformed um, um graduate education. That's probably not true for, for everybody. It could, maybe it was just my classes or my professors or whatever, but we did not read the church fathers. And so, um, so it was after that, it was, it was on the way into moving from a more Protestant, um, kind of church expression to a more Catholic universal church, liturgical church, sacramental church that, that was, they were like the the uh, they the church fathers grease the tracks for me hmm. uh, when when I'm reading folks uh, from the English Reformation, not the Continental Reformation, but like the English reformers who were kind of this weird blend of Catholic and Protestant. They're mm -hmm. quoting they're quoting church fathers left and right. Um, so uh, yeah, so so you combine that for me with the actually I, again I reference it again the ancient faith radio podcast um all of them like like i i digested a few years ago i just went through every possible eastern orthodox podcast i could find uh -huh. and the main the main reason was one i'd never been exposed to any kind of eastern theology and two i could not i i, I couldn't believe that this was basically I, I feel like i was getting a an up close and personal understanding of what some of the early church fathers taught explicitly, like, mm -hmm. like from their writings directly, not reinterpreted through the Reformation, but as they wrote it, you know, it's like, this is insane. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Um, right. when, when, you know, recently when Hank Hanegraaff made his big, isn't mm -hmm. that his name? He made yep, his big, that's the right. Bible the Bible answer, answer man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, his, his, his story was, uh, he went all the way, right? He go, he went all the way into Eastern Orthodoxy, but that that's what kind of ripped me out of my my Protestant context was the Church Fathers, and I got the Church Fathers through the current podcast boom and the Eastern Orthodox Church of America. So, I mean, that's that's just my story. So, SVS Press, you know, mm -hmm. has all these all these uh, Church Father books that um, I just started asking for them for Christmas. Saint Vladimir's um, Press and so, so that's what I started reading. Mm. Um, you know, I'm just remembering that 
one of my one of my one of my professors in seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary has also made he made this journey from Reformed uh, parts of the church into to the Anglican Church right before I did. He's actually now my boss at this cathedral, huh. and he he was my professor. Now he's my boss, and he made the same sort of journey. And he was the one professor who did assign uh, church fathers, and we read. Um, we read, oh man, on the sacraments, um, by, oh, why am I forgetting his name? Basil the Great, or is that, um, Athanasius? Starts with a C, starts with a C. Um, Cyril. Yep, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that, that was, that was the book we read, um, and uh, of course, that's a wildly different view of the sacraments than you would find in Protestant churches. So, sure. yeah. So since so since then, I just I mean, I, I just gained a respect that I did not have for the first what four or five centuries of the church. Um, mm. I didn't even know that I could read the fathers and 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 understand them. But if you if you look at like Athanasius uh, on the incarnation, that's like a wonderful short every year at Christmas read, you know, for like, mm-hmm. that could be, it's so accessible. Um, it's, it's, it's so accessible. It's fascinating. And one of the other things about the church fathers that has really inspired me is in, in, in the, the American expression of Anglicanism, which is called the Episcopal church. Um, it has sort of, it's, it's a mainline denomination and it's basically gone just wildly liberal i mean to if we're going to use words liberal and conservative it is what most people would think of as liberal theology you know now that that's not my expression of theology that's not actually my church's expression of anglicanism mm-hmm. but that's that's on the whole that's where that denomination is so while the denomination as a whole is sort of drifting liberal there there are a lot of um folks i don't want to just say it's all millennials but i feel like there are a lot of millennials who grew up in the very conservative, maybe even like a fundamentalist kind of background that are, uh, as you probably heard on social media and other Christian uh, media outlets, like they're jumping ship, right? They're leaving Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, Josh Harris or the two guys in Charlotte, North Carolina, I think that have a big uh, podcast, Rhett and someone, I can't remember his name, but um, they're all jumping ship. I, what I what I found out in reading the Church Fathers is that a lot of the views that people think are brand new or like ultra liberal or something is actually like way within the stream of 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 broad orthodoxy throughout the centuries. Hmm. Um, like the like right now, everyone's talking about David Bentley Hart's book on on yeah, hell that all shall be saved. Right? Yeah, many yeah. of the and, church fathers were universalists and well, believed that all would be saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the the way that the way that everyone uses the word universalist may not be the same, but but yes. yeah, that's that's a good example. Like for example, a number of years ago when Rob Bell wrote his book and everyone freaked out, it's like it's it's I, what I wish someone could have told Rob Bell is, hey man, did you know that there were a bunch of authors in the first five <laughs> centuries of the church that you could read who might actually offer you an option. That is right. still within the stream of orthodoxy, and you don't have to pretend to be this like rogue, rebellious. Let's lead everyone out of the the church. Like, why don't you submit to the church and find within the fathers one of the views? Because they I, that that's what. So so I find freedom. I find mm-hmm. theological freedom 
and orthodoxy at the same time in the fathers. And I, I just think for people, especially for people who grew up fundamentals that are feeling the need to jump the jump the ship right now, once they find out that their their fifteen to eighteen hundreds view of inerrancy or, or whatever, however you want to talk about the scripture, is not going to hold up. And now they're like, oh, it's all it's all fake. You know, no, you right. why don't you just why don't you look at the fathers and how they talked about scripture? And there are different ways to think about what it means that scriptures are completely true um, and also written by humans. So absolutely. Maybe no, this it's is a great. Rant, but. No, it's not a rant. It's really important because we're talking about people within some of the greatest minds in history within the first centuries of the faith. They were mm-hmm. closer to the apostles than we are. And and that's really important to remember. We are not claiming, I don't hear you claiming that they are inerrant, right? Mm-hmm. That they are, mm-hmm. but but that they are geniuses who are very close to the original timing of the founding of, of the faith and involved in the founding of the faith. And, and that's really important. And then also to point out that the reformers themselves were eager, eager, eagerly claimed the church fathers. Calvin spent so much time referencing the fathers and the institutes. Anybody who reads the institutes knows that. So mm-hmm. we're not talking even within the magisterial reformation, there was an understanding of the importance of these authors and these writers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They I'm- were not rejecting the fathers. They were claiming them as their own. And so even as we differ and very within the ecumenical Christian faith, to your point, this is the knowledge of the men who were part of the founding of the faith, part of the church councils, who are establishing the doctrines of the Trinity and of the Holy Scriptures uh, and of the Incarnation. They have something to offer modern Christians no matter what, where we stand theologically. And I mm-hmm. hear in what you're saying an invitation to be a part of that foundation of the faith. Yes, that, that's absolute. That's it. They're, they... It's like what we're saying now is the the church fathers become kind of a point of unity, like mm. a point of reference for unit for Catholicity across the church. You know, um, so yeah, I, I, I wow, I, I just think there's so much to to talking about the early church fathers um, and and reading them um, and hearing them discussed on those on those podcasts was just a deep deep part of my my journey. Like it made me want to be a part of the big, big stream of, of, of the Christian church, not, not like a little, I don't know, maybe how you'd say it, like a ghettoed kind of a mm-hmm. theological ghetto. You know, I, right. I don't, I want to be a part of the big, the big stream. So. I love that. I felt that too. That's been a big part of my journey. Thank you for putting that into words. So Josh, we have just a few more minutes left uh, and this might seem a bit unusual, but I do want to ask you to speak to what's going on in the culture right now. This is a big moment in the United States, and you and I were talking mm-hmm. offline before we hit record about COVID, about the the threat of the coronavirus, and right now we're in the throes of a national crisis, which is producing anxiety for a lot of people. Uh, can you speak to people struggling with fear or loneliness or anxiety right now? Absolutely. First of all, let me let me just speak as if kind of how I'm talking to myself right now. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, 
we're, we're, we're humans and we're going through uh, a tragedy where our, our humanity, the weakness of our humanity is being exposed, you know, our frailty. And the tendency is to like despise that. Um, not, not, not in a healthy theological way, but like to resist it. And, um, that's not going to work. Like, I mean, at, at some point, um, whether it's, it's this or something else, like death will, will win the day for, for these, for our current human selves. So, um, this is where the, by the way, the existentialists, um, part of the psychological family are really helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, they just say like, you, you, you've got to wrestle with your fear of death. Um, so we could talk about whether it's the coronavirus or terrorism or whatever, it's, it's all the same. It's a fear of death. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about earlier about befriending our sorrow. And I think now would be a time to befriend our fear and our anxiety and um, let it, let it, let it lead us, but mm-hmm. not let it um, dominate us. Cause, cause that's the coronavirus isn't all there is. Death is not all there is in, in the world. Um, so that would be, um, that would be too narrow to, to let your, the reality of the coronavirus, the reality of our feeble human bodies, the reality of death, to let that dominate would be, um, not a, a realistic assessment of all there is in the world, you know. But on the other hand, to resist it, pretend it's not there, pretend we're not afraid, um, that would be like an equal mistake. Mm. So the first healthy thing we can do is feel our emotions. It's like second grade stuff that probably most of us did not get, including me, mm. that I learned when I was, what, 25 or something. Oh, it's okay to feel afraid. Right. And, 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 and um, if, if I could be so bold, I would say um, to talk to yourself and don't, don't feel weird about it. Tell yourself what any good parent would tell a scared child. Um, like, so in a sense, kind of be, be your own mom and dad. Hey, Josh, you know, there, this is scary. Everything's shutting down in your city. Um, people are freaking out. Um, you, you, you do have the chance of getting sick. Um, but I want you to know that, um, God is in charge and we're going to, I'm going to help you do healthy things with your fear. I'm going to help you do healthy things with your anxiety. Um, that, that's the second thing. If you don't befriend your fear and anxiety, it's going to, uh, not only take over, but it's, you're going to end up doing real, it's going to come out sideways, you know, Mm -hmm. through addictions or through, um, I don't know, irritability. Uh, you're going to push people away that you actually need when you're Mm -hmm. at home quarantined or, or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, so befriend your emotion, validate it. Uh, don't judge it. Um, don't let it overtake you either. Um, since Jesus is king and not your fear, right? Um, and then I, I would say, like, it, it's funny, in a, such an individualistic society, when all of our bodies fail us at the same time because of this, like, common virus, it's like you can't deny anymore the reality of community, that we are mm-hmm. in a community, that we're a part of a whole. It isn't, isn't that funny? Like for yeah. liturgical and sacramental churches right now, um, we are, we are already in touch with, uh, the idea of common, common religion, common prayer, common approaches to God, what, what we all share in common. We don't necessarily think of prayer as an individual sport, you know? Right. And so, so here you have like 
in, 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 in our circles in America, we have a bunch of individualistic kind of Christian mentalities and they're up against a common virus. It's like, that doesn't work. Like, so now common prayer and common worship is more important than ever, right? Because right. we're battling a common enemy. Hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so community is a part of this. Um, so there's, we've got self-care, befriend your fear, um, do things in common um, and in a healthy way, of course, especially as churches are closing down, but be with family, pray with family, be with friends, pray with friends. Um, I don't know if I, if I could, if I can pull off both of those things over the next eight weeks, I will feel like even as a therapist, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the right track because I think those two, I think those things are hard to do. Yes. Um, No, that's wisdom. Thank you. So just a quick little question. What are you reading right now? We're all, we're all stuck at home reading. What are you reading right now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mentioned Anna Karenina. So that's Uh my, that's my big, that's my big project at home. Um, I'm also reading, um, is it, it George Weigel's Letters to a Young Catholic, I think, Letter to a Young Catholic. Uh, it's really interesting. Just like it's it's short, it's super accessible, um, and it's a, kind of in story form. So it's it's wonderful. Okay. I recently finished uh, Wendell Berry, some Wendell Berry stuff, and um, that for me was the first time I'd read his his fiction work, like Jaber Crow and uh, Anna, Anna Coulter. Coulter. Yeah, yeah. They're excellent. I, We're I, big I, fans of Wendell Berry over at Forma. I enjoy those stories very much. Yep. I'm sure there's other stuff. You know, one thing we talked about earlier was work, and I'm, I meant to reference a book that we, I, I, I thought that we would get to it, but the book that helped me put some work things together that it, um, would be something to read in the next few weeks of quarantine, perhaps, would be um, Thomas More's A Life at Work. Okay. A li- uh, Thomas More, not the old Thomas More, but he's a the new Thomas point, More, used, the one who is not yeah. you know, assassinated or murdered by Henry VIII. That's exactly <laughs> correct. Right, 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 right. And and this this guy is for 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 our listeners, like in terms of Orthodox Christianity, I think there would probably at this point be some issues with his Orthodoxy. Maybe we we would all agree if um, in terms of just classic statements of faith, but. Um, there's a lot to be gained from his writing and how, how he thinks about work. And he also wrote a book called The Reenchantment of Everyday Life. And okay. that's a really interesting read too. Um, okay. This is good. I'm making a list. Yeah. I haven't read either of those. So I think you would just based on your how you talk about your work and your life, I think you would really get a kick out of his book on work. So he argues for a multiplicity of work, not a, not a, not just choosing one thing. He thinks that's like a modern sort of, uh, error. I agree. I think he's right. That's good. I'd love to read that. Are you, what about work right now? Are you working on any projects that we should know about? And what are you most excited about that you're working on right now? Oh man, I'm, I'm working on family. I'm working on raising my daughters. Um, (laughs) I don't know Good for how you. well I'm, yeah. I don't know how well I'm doing at that. I mean, you know, as a as an artist, um, musician, I'm I'm that's there's a sadness in 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 not being able to just spend days writing and recording. I mean a, right. a deep there's a there's a loss there. 
but um, I, I think it's for a much better cause. So, um, and I hope I hope that in the days to come, I get to return to that. I'm, I've got songs that are percolating, and mm. I'm just trying to to put them on paper as we go. So, I don't know when, but I, I have a feeling that in the next nine months or so, so there will be some windows of time as my my one year old gets a little bit older. Um, that I can spend a weekend and get some of these songs on tape, and then that will be that will be the next project. I do okay. know that I want to do a, another singer songwriter project, so I don't think I'm going to be doing a hymns thing, but I've got some new some new songs along the lines of that horror film conversation that we had. Huh. <laughs> so I want to get I'm, some some dark songs out there. I will eagerly anticipate that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All good. right. For Thank our you. formal listeners. How can they find you, Josh? Yes. So you can find me just at my website, joshbells.com. And I, I try to keep it as up to date as possible. And it's got where I'm, I'm playing at different conferences or um, articles that I'm writing for Colson Center or, or, or sermons that I'm giving at church. So um, I try to just get my content out there. Great. All right. Well, go ahead and find that for my listeners. I'm telling you, it is a treasure trove. So Josh, thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast, on the Circe Podcast Network. This was such a good conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I hope that it can bless people. So thank you um, so much. Absolutely, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me and just your your kind questions and your encouragement of my, my own work. I, I, it really does mean a lot. So I appreciate oh. it. Thank you. Well, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, If you like what you hear, please uh, follow us, uh, subscribe, uh, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to Form a Journal as well. We are busily working on the spring issue and we've got some great reviews and articles and original poetry like we always have. Um, So we will catch you next time with more contemplations on the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture. I'm Heidi White for the Cersei Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.